Coming to you from my home studio in the beautiful city of Los Angeles, it's part three of the patron special on Ask Science Mike. You've got questions, he's got answers. Even though we may not understand, he'll talk anyway. You've got problems, he won't solve them. But he'll talk and talk and talk until he's blue in the face. Science, faith, and life. Well, hello, Internet friends. Uh, welcome to another episode of Ask Science Mike. And uh, I might have left you with a little accidental cliffhanger Thanksgiving week when I said I planned on doing a show per day that week <laughs> without realizing that uh, my wife wanted me to be an involved member of the family during the holiday break. <laughs> so that didn't happen. And uh, instead, now we're here with part three of the patron special. These episodes of Ask Science Mike are all from my, or all the questions are from the people who make this show financially possible on Patreon. And I'm just going to keep doing these episodes until we get done with those questions, which hopefully is only going to be another couple parts. Uh, my aspiration would be to get them all done this week. Um, but let's have a, a brief fireside chat about Ask Science Mike and what's going on. Um, a few years ago, I was at a conference on creativity led by a man named Rob Bell. Uh, if you're not really into Christian culture, you may not know that Rob is a best-selling author and former pastor um, and that I attended his conference as an atheist. <laughs> And uh, the story of me kind of rediscovering God in my life became my book, Finding God in the Waves. But something else happened at that conference with Rob. And that something else is I got to hear uh, Rob's approach to creativity and to work. And I really listened in that two days. Uh, that conference. And uh, Rob had one thing, many things, but one thing in particular that stood out to me. And Rob said that you can't say uh, yes to something or you can't say no to anything until you said yes to something. Meaning that you can't stop filling your life with things that aren't related to your life's mission if you don't have a life's mission, if you don't have a central thing you are making your life be about. Uh, well, as I rediscovered God and as I rediscovered um, science uh, and that many people had trouble making those things uh, interact, I decided the thing I would say yes to would be helping people make peace between their faith and a modern scientific worldview. That's the thing I would say yes to, and uh, I did it. I went all in, and uh, boy, was it a mess at first. I took my blog, which was largely about uh, reviewing technology products and talking about technology, and switched it overnight into discussing things about spirituality, which means I lost my entire audience. Um, I uh, got into a lot of conflict with people in my life, who were conservative Christians and didn't like where I was going. Uh, 
and were frankly deeply concerned that uh, this new faith of mine was no faith at all. And uh, But it's okay. I had said yes to something. So I said no to all those things that uh, distracted me or prevented me from doing this calling in my life. And you know, because you listened to the program, that ended up uh, having me release a best-selling book that led me to becoming a full-time author and a full-time podcaster, both through Ask Science Mike and through the Liturgist podcast, and also traveling a lot because I get invited to speak at uh, churches and colleges and conferences and all kinds of places. Um, And man, I'm having the time of my life. But something strange happened. Once I said yes to something and started saying no to pretty much everything else, uh, the work took off. (laughs) Tens of thousands of people listen to this podcast every week. Millions listen to the Liturgist podcast every month. Um, Those are big numbers. And the amount of work required to keep material coming to your eyeballs and your ears and stages is considerable. So as the Liturgist podcast has grown, as since the Science Mike thing has grown, I've been working really hard at um, tooling up and creating new opportunities, more books, uh, more ways of interacting with you to the point that my work gets in the way of my work. Uh, So I go on tour, then I come back, and all the work I've stacked up about ongoing projects has to get done. And then the thing that started everything for me, the Liturgist Podcast and Ask Science Mike, we end up rushing to try to get done. So it's just been a crazy season in my life, and I wanted you to know why the podcast has become a little irregular this fall. It's not because I don't love Ask Science Mike. It's not because I don't look forward to answering your questions. I do. It's because uh, my genuine desire to serve all of you and to help all of you and to create a space for all of you is almost more than a full-time job at this point. So what have I been so busy doing? Well, you'll know soon enough because uh, if you're on my email list, you'll hear it and I'll announce it on this program. We're not quite ready to talk about it. But what I've been doing is getting ready to have more stuff available for you in 2018 and 2019 than I have so far. More uh, more types of media, more media platforms, more ways to engage, and hopefully to uh, reach more people as well. So that's why um, we're just going to roll with the rest of this Patreon episode. Then I'm going to try to get things back on track with normal episodes of Ask Science Mike. And I'll, I'll also be honest. If you listen to the program, you probably are aware I love the live shows. Man, I love the live episodes. They're my favorite by far. And sometimes it's hard for me to get uh, back in the studio alone <laughs> and, and make the show. Um, because I'll start recording it. And I'll get it really far into an episode, and I can just hear it. It sounds flat. It sounds boring. 
And uh, a lot of times I'll start over on those episodes. So it, part of it is like my post-tour, uh, you know, come down as well, getting back to normal, getting back in the routine. Uh, so that, I've rambled for almost, you know, eight minutes now. <laughs> um, but I just, I don't know. I like to, I like our relationship. I have a lot of friends who do public work. And their audiences and their communities treat them like celebrities. And when I see all of you on the road and when you send me your messages and email and on social media, it just feels like more like we're a community and uh, that I'm just hosting something that we're all a part of. So I like to be honest about what's going on to keep that relationship um, authentic and vulnerable. So with that, what do you say? Let's answer some questions from my patrons. This week's first question comes from Joe, who says, Hey, Mike, I wonder what your thoughts were on the recent headlines that address how much matter and antimatter shouldn't be in equal amounts, since by our current scientific understanding, they'd wipe each other out. Yet even our most up-to-date tests find that they are exactly in equal measure in our solar system and beyond as far as we've been able to measure. Therefore, we slash any matter at all defy explanation by existing at all. Okay, Joe, let's talk a little bit about matter-antimatter. Yeah, so the theory and cosmological models of the creation of our universe into its current state from a singularity involve roughly or exactly equal amounts of matter and antimatter. But if that was the case, uh, matter and antimatter annihilate when they collide. They destroy each other completely, uh, converting into energy. Um, And that's an issue because that means right after the Big Bang, when matter was created and antimatter was created, there should be nothing left. And yet there is something. So there are different cosmological theories about why there was a little bit more matter than antimatter, and that remainder is what created all the matter in the universe. Now, when you talk about recent headlines, I'm not familiar with any recent headlines uh, that say that um, there's roughly equal amounts of matter and antimatter. In our solar system, there is not. Um, Our solar system is overwhelmingly composed of matter for the aforementioned tendency for uh, matter and antimatter to annihilate each other. I did see something uh, er- earlier, I think in November or October, uh, that we're getting uh, more positrons uh, colliding with the Earth's atmosphere than we would expect normally. Uh, positrons are electrons with a positive charge, they're antimatter electrons. And we don't have, uh, and forgive me, since this is a patron episode, I haven't uh, pre-researched answers to the questions. This is off the top of my head. But um, there are some prevailing theories about why we're seeing so many positrons, but nothing concrete, nothing certain. I think one theory involved pulsars uh, basically creating positrons and scattering them in the cosmos. Now, positrons are very small. This has an electron. Space is very big and very empty. 
So it is certainly possible for some positrons to stream through space and make it to the Earth. Um, and a positron-electron interaction, annihilation, isn't a terribly huge amount of energy. Um, so it's not going to blow up planets or anything like that. Um, but yeah, we don't know exactly. This is the thing in physics. Um, we have really well-developed models for how the universe came to be, but they all have problems. They all have uh, things, gaps in their explanation uh, and in their predictive power. And uh, why there is matter instead of no matter at all is an unsolved mystery in science. But I do want to say, unless I am missing something very obvious, which is possible, uh, there's not that much antimatter in our solar system. And if there are equal amounts of matter and antimatter, uh, there would be no solar system at all. Nathan asks, favorite mathematical or scientific paradox? Question mark. For me, anything to do with infinity melts my mind in satisfying ways. For example, the Banach-Tarski paradox. Gosh, I've never thought about my favorite paradoxes. Um, the Banach-Tarski is an interesting paradox that uh, seems to indicate that using clever mathematics, you could uh, make two identical copies of one sphere with no additional materials. Uh, and again, it's because there's an infinite number of points on the surface of a sphere uh, is the root of why that paradox presents itself. Um, for more information, there's a great uh, Vsauce episode I remember watching on that paradox. Uh, I don't know that I have a favorite mathematical or scientific paradox. Uh, I know that in uh, linguistic paradoxes, um, like the following statement is true, the preceding statement is false, those are not uh, paradoxes that stem from the nature of reality, but instead the gaps in our ability to describe reality using language. And I suspect that mathematical paradoxes um, are similar. They stem from the way that our scientific and mathematical models don't fully represent reality. Uh, so they're super fun thought experiments, but I don't know that I could name a favorite. Uh, Joe says, is there a science regarding the benefits, if any, of resting one day out of every seven? Um, Joe, I'm not familiar with any research that points to one day out of seven as being particularly useful. However, there is copious research uh, that demonstrates that we have health benefits and mental benefits and even benefits to our creativity from regular periods of rest. And, and us, our culture, um, which is very productivity-focused, um, tends to, especially in America, discount the importance of rest. So no, nothing specifically about a Sabbath that I know of, but certainly lots of research supporting the importance of rest. Mike asks, I'm interested in your thoughts on how we should handle gender dysphoria with children. While I accept that transitioning can be tremendously valuable and freeing for those who struggle with gender dysphoria, 
My concern is that children and teens may not yet be at a maturity level that would allow them to make such a major life-impacting decision. I'm especially concerned that advocates and supporters of the transgender community would push for children to transition more quickly, even if this conflicts with the parents' well-meaning wishes for a child to wait until they have reached a greater level of maturity. Mike, I do not believe there is a correct answer to this question. Not like a single correct answer. Uh, We need to learn more about uh, trans people. We need to learn more about the science behind um, why some people identify as different genders and when that's temporary and when that's permanent. I can understand that for a trans person, um, transitioning is a lot easier before puberty. Um, but I, I certainly could understand that there, there's a concern that if children start frequently transitioning before puberty, they may perhaps regret that. Um, now you're placing a lot of um, potential stress if people are deciding what gender they're going to be before puberty and, and sometimes making the wrong decision. I, I don't know what the right um, strategy or approach there is other than a case-by-case basis in conjunction with mental health professionals and medical doctors to make those determinations. And certainly our mental health professionals and our medical doctors um, today probably don't know enough about trans folks to uh, make that determination a whole lot better than the child or the parents do. So this is this is uh, an incredibly complex issue, an issue that creates a tremendous amount of human suffering. Um, so I, I don't know. All I know is that when people make that decision, I support them. Jeremy asks, what's going on in our brain slash body when we play video games that allow us to play to go longer periods of time without sleep? I can be extremely tired all day, possibly from playing video games all night, then jump on League of Legends and play until late into the night. Thank you for the le- the profound impact you've had on my life. I hope one day to tell you in person. That's very kind. Thank you, Jeremy. Um, what's going on in our brains? Stimulation. Lots of stimulus. Uh, bright lights that tell your brain that it's time to be awake. Lots of uh, dopamine craving followed by rewards. Uh, Modern video games are designed to be addicting, to encourage deeper play cycles. Um, And so your brain's kind of hooked on that stimulation and overstimulation, really. And so it leads you to a pattern where you'd rather be sleepy during the day uh, than miss out on um, this activity. As someone who loves gaming, I would encourage you to um, put some strict time boundaries on the amount of gaming you have per day, especially if you're experiencing anxiety, depression, or if it's impacting your ability to make a living. Uh, Games today are not like the games that I grew up with. They are engineered to create compulsions and even perhaps to create addictions. So watch out. Uh, there's a reason you'll stay up all night 
And that reason is stimulation. Chris asks, understanding that science depends on a certain confidence slash predictability to make truth claims about the nature of reality, how do we account for the unpredictable or unreplicatable circumstances that can be deemed miraculous without attributing them to mysticism or the supernatural? How can science give credit to something that may well happen with limited occurrence and limited observability? Okay, science doesn't really make truth claims. Science is a tool for assigning confidence in a belief wherein more evidence, uh, either through experiment or through observation, uh, then allows us to increase or decrease confidence in an idea. So what does science do with things that cannot be repeated? It looks at the aftermath. We can't repeat the Big Bang, but we can look at the aftermath. We can't look at evolution or repeat evolution, but we can look at what evolution leaves behind and in doing so, learn about the world. So when we talk about things that are unreplicatable and unobservable in science, we just don't talk about them at all. We have no reason to accept them as fact, to place confidence in those beliefs or really to investigate them further. Um, if miracles not only uh, happen occasionally, but don't leave behind any evidence of the event, as far as science is concerned, uh, they're, they're a non-thing. <laughs> um, so, you know, if, if we're talking about healing, for example, even if we're not there for the healing, if we have a medical record of someone before and after, uh, a healing event, well, gosh, that would be something that we could measure and observe and build theories around. Uh, it just so happens that that seems to be a very uncommon occurrence that we have medical records documenting the before and after state of a miracle, and so it remains something more linked to spirituality and mythology. Matt asks, let's say you put Richard Rohr, Rob Bell, and Sam Harris around the table for an hour. What would that conversation sound like? Sam Harris openly opposes religious fundamentalism, but I've always been curious how he would respond to Richard and to Rob. Thanks for all you do. Uh, well, Matt, first of all, uh, that sounds like a fascinating conversation that would be very male-focused, so uh, I'd love to add women to that mix if such an arrangement was going to happen. Uh, but, gosh, I don't know. I don't know. I think uh, Sam would probably find Rob frustratingly vague in some ways and Richard Rohr as well. Um, but with his experience with uh, non-religious meditation, uh, perhaps he would understand that, that Rob and Richard often use metaphor and imagery to evoke something that is difficult or impossible to articulate precisely. Um, I don't know exactly how that conversation would go, but I'd love to hear it as much as you would. Rebecca says, Hi, Mike. I'm an anxiety-laden human being type person. I have an actual diagnosis of general anxiety disorder, not just an internet diagnosis from a BuzzFeed quiz. 
and I have PTSD, or so says my therapist. I take pharmaceuticals for anxiety as well. I talk very openly about it, as transparency about my difficulty-functioning brain helps me navigate the world. I'd rather people just know I'm not always fully capable of regular life than disappoint them for simply being me. What do you suppose is the best way to respond or not when people completely discount my reality? Way more than half of the time, probably close to nine times out of ten, my frankness is met with, oh, you're just fine, or yeah, I get nervous too, or some other dismissive statement. I usually follow up with, no, I'm actually crazy, but that's probably not the best way to explain mental illness. Uh, What do you suppose, Mike? Thanks so much for the opportunity to ask. Uh, I would agree with your suspicion that calling yourself crazy is is probably not the best approach uh, because we don't want to reinforce uh, popular tropes about mental illness and crazy, that, that word so often used to dismiss people simply for having feelings or to marginalize and ignore the needs of people with genuine mental health uh, disorders or needs. Um, In terms of how to deal with people's discomfort, maybe society's not ready for that to be an opening statement. Um, So save that for closer relationships, perhaps. Uh, Or if you're called to that kind of advocacy, understand that some people um, aren't ready to engage at that level. Uh, with mental health issues, because why? There's no simple answers to someone suffering from generalized anxiety disorder on an ongoing basis. Um, Some people have developed empathy enough to simply sit with you and be present and to listen and to acknowledge, Uh, but that's, I think that's that's beyond most people's abilities today. Uh, Or maybe keep it uh, attached to specific events or contexts. Um, and then with, when people are dismissive, uh, maybe those aren't people you invite to a deeper level into your life. Uh, or if they say, oh, you're just fine, or yeah, I get nervous too. Um, you could open them up with a little bit of reflection or empathy back. Say, no, I, I understand that uh, you're doing your best to acknowledge my situation. Uh, but what I'm talking about is actually much more profound than being nervous. Uh, or no, I'm not actually just fine. This is actually a serious problem that I deal with. Um, and, and just open that that door uh, that no, you need to take another look. You need to be more empathetic. Uh, and some people may respond to that invitation. Uh, others, others may not. We have a strange relationship with mental illness and mental health in our culture. And uh, unfortunately, you're on the receiving end of that problem. Mandy asks, I really enjoyed the names episode of the Liturgist podcast. Names and naming have always seemed important to me, both in the Bible and in our culture. If you could change your name conveniently and without social repercussions, what name would you choose and why? Bonus question, you are 11 years old and the sorting hat is placed upon your head into which Hogwarts house are you sorted? Oh, gosh, I've never, ever, ever thought 
about what name I would have if uh, I didn't have my name. So I, I have no idea. Uh, sorting hat. I never can know uh, if I'm a Ravenclaw uh, or a Hufflepuff because um, intellectual curiosity and loyalty and friendship are about equally important to me. PJ asks, what research has been done to understand the placebo effect and how it might work? And do you think this could explain apparent answers to prayer and why many more healings are reported when praying for people in countries where people are less skeptical of supernatural intervention? Uh, Absolutely, I think that uh, the placebo effect could help explain many people's answered prayer in response to issues involving pain or health. The placebo effect is real and documented and quite potent, actually. Um, I'm not aware of any single comprehensive theory in science today about what causes the placebo effect. I think it is something a little beyond our ability to study and measure in the brain today. Uh, So, uh, like you, I'd love to know how the placebo effect works. Stephen and Samantha asks, first of all, love what you're doing, keep it up. I was wondering if you could explain the human compulsion to figure things out. Basically, why do we seem to have the instinct that's more or less driven us to have great things like science, but also frustrates us when we can't explain or understand things? Is this specific to humans, or do other animals have this drive too? Ooh, that's a fun twist on the question. Uh... Basically, we have a small patch of tissue about as thick as a a tortilla uh, behind our foreheads and above the orbit of our eye called the orbitofrontal cortex. And uh, your orbitofrontal cortex loves to puzzle about the world. It loves to predict the future. It works in conjunction with other parts of your brain to build a map of reality. And we have a, a, a bias towards feeling certain about our worldview. So we like to feel like we have things figured out. And in fact, we like that so much. Sometimes if uh, evidence points to the contrary, that perhaps we don't have things figured out all that well, we'll kind of ignore that information to stay comfortable and feel like we understand the world and therefore have some degree of control over it. Um, and that's, that's neurological in origin. Our, our orbital frontal cortex creates this craving for certainty, at least as we understand the brain today in neuroscience. In terms of other animals, you know, gosh, I don't know enough about other intelligent species to understand the degree to which they, you know, have to solve puzzles. Um and it's really tough since our, our species is uniquely oriented toward language. Um, I have a book called Other Minds that I'm getting ready to read. Um, and another one that says, are we smart enough to know how smart animals are? I suspect both those books may help me answer this question better. Um, but today, no, gosh, I don't know about other animals and the need for certainty. But in Homo sapiens, it comes from a highly developed prefrontal cortex, and orbitofrontal cortex. (laughs) 
Todd says, there was a recent Vox article about how self-control is functionally an illusion on a broad scale. Willpower doesn't actually help us develop a habit of not doing negative things as much as replacing it with an alternate alternate positive habit that we like. That's true. haven't read that article, Todd, but that is true. Uh, back to your question. But our tendency proceeding from our evolutionary development is to focus on the negative survival and control. And in, for instance, church settings, we can spiritualize this attachment process because the negative core value feels more real and valid. Will we have to evolve further before we are capable of forming communities that can center on positive focus, new creation, instead of attachment? And in there, but I assume you mean attachment to our fears. Um... No, I th- I think you can form community uh, based on positive things. I think we're doing that with the liturgists. But I think that's because people reach the end of a road where their fear-based community completely falls apart on them. And then um, out of desperation. This is what Richard Rohr kind of calls that second half of life um, movement. Uh you almost have to have a fundamentalism so you can break it. <laughs> but once you do, I, I still get afraid sometimes, but my, my behaviors are much less fear-driven than they've ever been. Um, and so I think personal development, not species evolution, can help us reach that point where we rally around points of positive belief and positive action as opposed to rallying together from a fearful outside world. Um, in terms of the habit stuff, though, that's that's totally true. Uh, willpower is a very finite resource in the brain, uh, not effective in the long term, and replacing bad habits is much, much, much easier than just eliminating the habit itself on its own. Um, which is actually something I talk about a lot in my next book. Okay, Emily says, uh, looking at the other comments, this one may seem out of place, but whatever. This is something that I've wondered about on occasion. Do men... (laughs) Sorry. Uh, (laughs) Do men actually clog the toilet more than women? (laughs) I hear a lot of anecdotes about women who never owned a toilet plunger until they got married slash started living with a man, but is there any science behind that, or is it a load of bullshit, pun intended? Oh, well done. That is a fun and fantastic question. Uh, Yeah, actually, there are anatomical differences uh, in men and women's gastrointestinal tracts. They... uh, for, uh, for obvious reasons, if you think about it, women have wider hips and extra organs uh, in the form of their reproductive organs uh, that force our intestinal tracts to take a different route through the body. So uh, women's colons are lower than men's and a little bit longer. And then um, men's abdominal walls are uh, more firm. Um and so they can push food through the GI tract more effectively. They're more, they're more, yeah, firm is probably a good word. 
this is his body composition. Uh, so that has been shown um, to cause uh, men to have a little bit more regular bowel movements um, and also makes women more prone to bloating. Um, in terms of how much the toilet gets clogged, I, I don't have a clue there. Uh, but I do know that men and women poop differently. Timothy says, is learning to play musical instruments akin to learning a foreign language? If so, how and in what way? Uh, no, I would not imagine that they are all that similar, Timothy. Um, a musical instrument uh, is going to use a different part of the brain. They're both going to occur in the temporal lobes, one in the left, the other more in the right. There's a lot more motor function involved in learning a language. Um that's not in, or excuse me, what a function involved in playing an instrument that is not involved at all in learning to play a language. Play a language? I am mixed up by your question, Timothy. It, learning a foreign language. Uh, so, no, I'd imagine they're pretty dissimilar. They both involve a lot of cortical activity, a lot of activity in the neocortex. You're having to concentrate really hard when you're learning a new language and learning to play a new instrument. So, in that way, they are very similar. Uh, anything new that's challenging is going to be similar in that way, though. Um, but it, I do see where the theme of the question is. You can feel very tired and exhausted, both trying to learn to play a new instrument and learn a new language. And that has to do with our brain structure and the parts of our brain that are responsible for learning. And, of course, foreign languages and musical instruments are both best learnt through practice and repetition uh, so no matter where they're originating, uh, specifically in the brain, roughly you're moving from a lot of neocortex activity and then into deeper parts of the brain as you solidify pathways for that new activity. Mike asks, are you at all familiar with the Buddhist idea of emptiness or no independent self as expressed in, for example, the Heart Sutra? And if so, do you see it similarly to the insights of Christian mystics, including, and I admit this might be a bit of a stretch, the doctrine of the Trinity? Um, I'm familiar with the no independent self idea um, in Buddhist teaching. I got to remember, Buddhism, in the West we tend to oversimplify. There's no single Buddhism. There are multiple schools of Buddhist thought. Um, and we tend to like just look at this kind of pan Buddhism as popularized by folks like Ram Dass and um, Alan Watts, and I'm as guilty of that as anyone. Um, I do see some some profound similarities in some structures of Buddhist thought and uh, and Christian theology. Um, I think the the Buddhist Brahmin. And the Christian ground of being seem uh, to have kind of a similar approach to describing ultimate reality, whatever that means. Uh, in terms of attaching the Heart Sutra to the Trinity, um, I, I guess I, I just don't have any specific thoughts there. They're just they're different, very, very different metaphors. Although both involve humanity trying to relate to the mystery of the divine. 
Marissa asks, any advice for feeling frustrated when people thank God for your safety during a hurricane when you know others were not so blessed, a.k.a. lucky slash privileged in skeptic speak? Uh, I think it's okay to feel frustrated uh, at people expressing thanks to God in difficult circumstances like that because you have seen things another way. I think it's fine. I think, obviously, uh, offer them a little grace. That's their way of expressing gratitude that they are safe and they are okay. Uh, perhaps one thing you could do is say, you know, if, if it's important to you, um, now now that we're safe and I'm so glad you're safe, uh, how, how is God leading us to address the situation of those who were not so fortunate? And that orientation towards action uh, may help you not only get to know the person better, but help both of you be more effective in response to a natural disaster. Eric asks, One trend I have become more aware of lately, more frequently online but sometimes in person, is people of a certain privileged status, i.e. mostly white, cisgendered males, more often than not of conservative or libertarian leanings, attempting to close off discussions about policies or social issues with charges of others, often those of a less privileged station, not being rational. Ultimately, that which is held to prove the former's position, or that the facts don't care about their feelings. I know you have mentioned before the use of the Enlightenment thought and certain ideas about rationality to keep marginalized people marginalized. But what are effective measures, if any, to continue such conversations further on than this? Anecdotes and other stories do not seem to impress those claiming the side of rationality in their search for objectivity, but on the other hand, would trying to engage with them on what data they use simply help perpetuate their current tendencies of fetishizing rationality. Thank you for all you do. We are way over-invested in online communication uh, as a means of changing people's minds about issues of importance. Discussions with friends, families, or strangers online is simply not a very effective way to educate people. It's just not. I mean, uh, when we talk in person, we see people's reactions, we catch their body language, and even in a quote-unquote rational discussion, that helps facilitate a real exchange of information. Online, we miss that, and we just turn people into avatars, and we get in a war about who's right and who's wrong, and uh, uh, I'm over it. So what do I do online? I talk to sympathetic ears. I help people rally around community. I help create talking points for people to then go out and disseminate in their actual communities in flesh and blood, because that is where the work is. When people try to debate me online, I take a hard pass. I'm out. It doesn't mean I'm not fantastic at debating people online. On the occasion I do it, yes, I can absolutely throw down. I'm witty. I'm clever. Uh, I, ha- I have a lot of facts in my corner to cite. Uh, sure. Um, but no, it's a waste of time. 
It's a lot of effort for no reward. The way to talk about these things is in person, in my opinion. Um, and you'll find that all this bluster about rationality, for example, if it's a conservative person, ask them their thoughts on climate change. And when they say they don't accept climate change, say, well, facts don't care about your feelings. The science is real, right? Um, and now, now you've got in a state where you're both feeling combative and and clever and, and no one's learning. Oh, it just kills me. <laughs> so I listen to people in person and I ask them questions and I tell them stories and I talk to them about asking them how to solve problems. I ask them how to solve problems and then I ask more questions where there's weakness in their thinking and I make sure at all times they never feel like we're in a debate or a fight. And uh, it's slow, hard work. And it's important. Um, so I would say don't engage those people online. Um, and I'm polite about it. Hey, look, I just I don't see either of us learning in this interaction. It seems like, you know, we're just demonstrating our intellectual prowess or whatever and, and I'm just not interested what I'm interested in is solving the problems that we face as a society and securing everyone's access to life liberty and the pursuit of happiness and uh, if we don't agree on that then you know <laughs> then we're definitely wasting time with this conversation Cameron says, hi, Mike. How can we as humans talk about humane treatment of AI when we have yet to fully grasp the concept of treating other humans humanely? I tend to be optimistic about the future, but generally struggle with what seems to be the inevitability of AI outpacing humanity and what it will mean when we are no longer on top. Curious what you think about this. Thanks for your time. Cameron, I'm not actually like a an AI inevitable singularity person. Um, I'm not sure that computers are going to get faster at the rate that uh, people think they will because of Moore's Law. That's something that has been true for several years. Um, AI is, is doing some very impressive things in machine learning and specific application, but not in generalized intelligence. Uh, and if AI does become more intelligent than us, we won't have to debate uh, what ethical treatment of AI means. Uh, AI will d debate what ethical treatment of us looks like. Um, one point you make about we don't treat other humans humanely, I do worry that we will architect in AI our own sense of cruelty and our own sense of uh, selfish ambition. And if we attach that to an, an incredible digital intelligence, uh, that's very frightening indeed. Okay, and I think that'll do it for today's episode. Uh, let's do another one tomorrow, part four of the patron show. Talk to you soon.